sidewalk, carjacking old lady at a red light, hooked up on the owner of a liquor store. Spit in this face, scope on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. But try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here we take care of our own. You cross Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of the show, Sal Marinello. This is The Hot Corner with Coach Sal. Episode 293 on the network, closing in on 300. Kind of like Major League Baseball is closing in on a magic number with salaries paid with injuries. We're going to get uh, into that a little bit later, an astronomical number. But uh, before we introduce Sal, just want to thank our 50,000-plus faithful subscribers. Uh, because of you, we are now the latest podcast network on iHeartRadio. Thank you for that. You can still stream us on our, our other platforms, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, but we are trying to flood the iHeart market, just like uh, we battled the analytics of the podcast world to get there. Like you do in baseball, we still got to battle those. So help us out. Give Sal five stars today. Write some great comments underneath that. And uh, Sal, you're global as usual. Uh, 74 countries are listening to you today. Grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. And uh, we've got a great show in store for him today. We we hit the baseball world, but we we get on the fringe of the political nature because Healthcare has become political nowadays. So, um, but Sal, welcome back to your show. Thanks. Great to be here. Like Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide, right, Dave? That's it. You are Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide. That's going to be my. That's that was his nickname there, I think. So that was. Yep. Did he trademark that? We could we could get that for you. No, I, I will come up with something better. All right. Yeah, the Mr. Worldwide. I like though. So welcome back. I know you you've been. Uh, you know, last week we talked about it. You were doing some some football, some some live color for some high school games, giving some coverage to the local boys out there in New Jersey. But uh, you've got some global stuff you want to talk about today with with, uh, with one of our favorite acronyms, CDC. Yeah, I think you know we're. we're I, I just have had conversations with people, Dave, and it, it, it's remarkable to me how people are continuing at, where I am, at least, along this path as as a continuance of the shutdown and COVID uh, mess and people still calling it a pandemic. And I think that's one of the, you know, even, even something like that, it's not, it was not a pandemic. The all cause mortality numbers did not go up during the height of non-vaccinated COVID. When you go back and look at the, the all cause mortality Excess deaths, whatever you want to look at, there was no change in 20. The The changes, the drastic changes occurred after that. So it gives you the sense of it wasn't the COVID that was killing people. It was some other intervention. And, you know, most people don't want to admit that, but it's looking more and more like the vaccines uh, initiation is where the uptick kind of appeared. And I'm having discussions with people, Dave, who are now on their fourth round of getting COVID. Fourth. And these are all vaccinated people who did all the things that they thought they were supposed to do that was was alleged to keep them healthy. And it just didn't work. And it's frightening to me that there's so many people willing to jump right back into that soup of, of nonsense. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, we can bring it to baseball where, you know, you get a guy, they'll bang on a guy, say he's a good hitter, he's a good hitter. The question you ask, if he's a good hitter, then why doesn't he hit good? And when you look at the, the vaccine, you're like, well, the vaccine works, then why isn't it working? Why do you have to take a fourth, a fifth, a sixth um, to do it? I think and, and we- so again, we've talked about this. Why do you care if I, ha- if I have it or not, if you have it? If it works and you have it, then it shouldn't matter to you. I'm, I'm doing what I want with my body. And if you're protected, then there's no risk. It's just like the seatbelt. The seatbelt, if, if I'm not wearing it and you're wearing yours, it has no bearing on what happens to you. So we're, we're at a, we, a very weird point, Dave, because we now, have, we now have more data than is needed to prove the conspiracy theorists were correct the whole time. Yeah, and, and for a decade, some of them before it even happened. We, uh, and I didn't, really, I mean, I just, I was chatting with my wife, I've, you know, scrolling through Facebook and every time I see a celebrity now uh, out in California, they always have, they have a mask on right now. And I'm in an area of the country where the, the, the first day that people started, when school started, they started this stuff again, you know, we've got an election coming up too. So the first time, uh, that came out where, you know, there's the new, new strand out there. Our governor got right on TV and said, we will not be participating in this farce again. We had to go through it once quickly last time. And we quickly, I mean, they didn't shut down much at all down here. And uh, we still had social, all that stuff. He goes, but we will not be going through any of that exercise at all. So uh, case closed. That was it. No. Yeah, and, and, and you know what, for his, uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me is I'm in the, in the capital of crazy town here between you know, the tri-state area and the uh, the influence of the Manhattan, New York City media and people here who are enamored with the city, where, whereas the city is probably at, at its low point since uh, it's been as bad as it's been since the 70s when I was a kid growing up and, the, and New York City and Central Park and the Port Authority and all these landmarks were punchlines to jokes. It's it's now gleaming and quote clean and new, but it's a disaster with the migrant, the illegal immigrants uh, who they call migrants uh, overrunning the the support system of the sanctuary city, which I don't want to get into. But what I will say is there was an astronomically high number of illegal immigrant children that um, were enrolled in New York City schools, and none of them had to be vaccinated. Whereas American citizen students had to be vaccinated to go to school, so you're you're really seeing how much they thought the vaccine is necessary to keep people safe in that in that instance. But you know, we I wanted to st- kind of stay away from anything that was overtly political, but it's gone beyond the point now where this is politics. It's really messing with people, and it is. It's really troubling to see what's going on here, even though what I started to say, people really haven't fallen under the sway of the nonsense. Like I don't I rarely see anyone with masks here and it's really quite the anomaly. And if that's the case here, it gives me hope that people really aren't going to fall for it because there's enough people that are smart enough to know that it was all BS the first time around. But the problem is that the the media in conjunction with the big businesses in the area are going along with it as if nothing ever happened. And here's a great example. I walked into my Walgreens the other day to get a couple of items and they have a huge sign 
get your COVID boosters here, aged three and up, three years and up. And other places are promoting, the commercials are promoting six months and up. And, and why that's troubling is that, as per the CDC, it was a couple of weeks ago, they issued new recommendations that advised everyone six months or older getting the COVID-19 vaccines. That's everybody, six months and older. Now, forget about a lot of the other things, data, but for the sake of just having a, a, a surface-level argument, the rest of the world, mostly like in the UK and in other European countries, they're not recommending anything to do with these boosters unless you're over 65 and have you know, certain health risks, comorbidities. That's, that's the, the strike point. So we have a, a difference of 63 and a half years between what the rest, most of the rest of the, of let's call it the, the West is doing and what we're doing. And that's, that's troubling. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to unwrap that now than to tell people like we tell them when we give them the sports advice, please do your own research and don't just take the, the blurbs out there as gospel and, um, you know, a thin cloth on your face, whatever the, the, whatever diaper they're putting on there. And especially those, I, I, and again, whatever it is, I don't put anything in my body unless I check it out. That's, um, I can't, I'm, I'm appalled, but I guess we watch the way people eat too. They don't pay attention to what they're putting in their body that way. So why would we think any, any more of them when it comes to a vaccine that's being told, Hey, this makes you right. We talk about the pharmaceuticals all the time. This makes you instantly lose weight. They'll no doubt they'll take 10 of them. And, uh, this helps you stay healthy from some imaginary, uh, virus out there. Boom. Um, well, we have, we have ample evidence that we have now two generations of, uh, I would consider, my parents' generation, maybe three generations, uh, the lower end of my parents' generation, certainly my generation and the generation below have no idea how to feed themselves. And I'll give you another example. This morning, I'm in Wawa getting my coffee and there's a family of five, a mother, father, and three small kids. And it's a quarter to eight. And the dad has three energy drinks and a, uh, a frosted, a glazed bear claw, which at Wawa is enormous. It almost looks like a, uh, it's the size of your, literally the size of your hand. Yeah, it's like a six inch sub. The mom has a huge coffee with cream and whipped cream and um, one of the flavor sugar syrups in it. And the kids who I think the oldest one was probably 11 or 12. And then there were probably an eight and a six year old had candy bars, a big bag of potato chips, and a Slurpee-like material, it's a Slurpee-like beverage. It's not a Slurpee at Wawa. It's whatever their variation of that, a version of that is. Yeah. Now, when you when you understand what foods like that do to the body and do to the do to a child's do to a child's brain chemistry and their ability to focus and concentrate and do work, you realize you have at least three kids now going into school in a state where they're not going to be able to absorb and learn anything. And on top of it, they were all grossly overweight. So the point here is not to body shame or diet shame, but we have a, a family that's representative of what's going on and the, the problems we're having. And there's no, and there is no guidance coming from up top 
where, where some people are looking for guidance, depending on guidance, to give anybody a way out of this. Yeah, they and you know that I'm, I'm imagining because it's the fallout. That was probably a version of a pumpkin spice latte. I saw the on TV yesterday, or actually on social media. <clears throat> There's some people I follow. I'll get the name for the audience, but did a sugar test on that stuff and, and showed you the visual. How much sugar is in one of those things? He went to all the famous coffee shops. I don't think Wawa was in there, but I'm sure it's the same. Yeah, <clears throat> it was like half of that large cup. We might as well just eat half of that cup with sugar based on the subs, whatever the substance flavor is in there, which isn't real pumpkin people, um, no. whipped yeah. cream and all the other stuff in there. It was, it was, uh, it's gross. And those kids that are going to school that are already, you know, they're, they're obese, they'll be diagnosed with that some sort of disease. Well, they, so research has shown Dave that the, uh, you know, a kid's brain, if you observe the kid after ingesting that kind of food, they would exhibit symptoms of what is clinically referred to as HDA. They'll be in school and in 20 minutes, they'll have them down at the counselor's office and they'll be, uh, you know, ADD or HDA, you know, whatever acronym they want to throw at it, but they'll be, um, and they'll put them on meds to solve that. Yeah. So, so there you have a case of, of, of that's, and that that's what they're having for breakfast. I mean, I, I, I've never seen a kid, an eight-year-old, with a bag of chips in the morning asking you know, their mom to buy it and actually not being told to put it back. You're not eating that for breakfast. So, you know, we're, it, we're in, a bad, in a bad place. And it goes back to the, the thing we were talking about with the, with the CDC and their recommendations, their own their – own, Data illustrates a point contrary to their advice. If you look at what they are reporting on their site, Dave, and we don't usually get into numbers like this, but we're just going to have to talk about this because you have to listen to it and kind of absorb it to understand. And then you have to go look at people out there have to go look for themselves and let this absorb. But they're talking about for a million vaccine doses, a million, that's a million doses, would prevent between 19 and 95 hospitalizations, 5 to 19 ICU admissions, and possibly one death for the 12 to 17-year-old bracket, okay? So that's pretty minuscule. The recommendations are even more ridiculous when you look at the 5 to 11-year-old, those numbers go down. There's even less of an effect there. But and those even, are also in a vacuum too, where there could be some other causes for the absolutely, hospitalization. Absolutely. And, and, and what we know track, what we know track record wise from, from the unfortunate group that died young from, or at any age, but particularly young that I believe there was an almost a hundred percent comorbidity, comorbidity rate in the young group. So no one was dying from COVID in that 17 and under group, unless they were sick from something else. So it's, it's really amazing to think that when you're looking at, they're saying maybe one death is pre- prevented. They know this is for Pfizer, Pfizer's data. Pfizer's data says that there is a thousand incidents of serious adverse events of special interests per 1 million. 
So you're talking about possibly preventing maybe one death. And we know, again, not one healthy child died from COVID. But there's going to be over a 1,000 adverse effects. And then when you look at the um, the, the real number that that is based on. Oh, I'm sorry, the real number that is likely because these numbers are, are skewed to make them look as positive as possible. It's even worse. So, so you're talking about a thousand plus serious adverse effect, events for less than a hundred instances of preventing hospitalization and, and, and not, not even getting into the catastrophic problem with myocarditis, which top cardiologists in the world were saying they would see one or two cases a year. And now these doctors are seeing multiple cases in a day. It's very scary that again, we're going in where our, our, let's not say we, our public health officials are going in all in on promoting this next round of boosters. Yeah. And you, you wonder who's getting paid because of it, you know, not that we want, we don't want to celebrate tragedy, but we've seen seemingly healthy professional athletes, actors, uh, doctors who promoted this stuff uh, drop right in front of us. And I'm not sure what other visual you need to see to at least kind of put a finger to your head and be like, huh, maybe there's a correlation. Yeah. We had a kid in South Jersey playing a football game died last weekend. Ugh. You know, and it's happening everywhere. It's not it's not the case of the kid who has a severe uh, neuromuscular injury, a, a broken neck, something that's life-threatening. You're talking about kids dropping dead and dying in their, you know, in this case, dropping dead on the field from a heart attack, which you never heard happen ever until the last few years. So yeah. everybody, just be careful you've got more than enough information out there. Again, if the CDC is telling you you're going to have a, a, over a thousand serious adverse effects per, per million, it's worse than that. And it's basically at this point, the common cold. So don't bother with any of this stuff, but at the same time, go out and educate yourself. Yeah. Well, uh, we move to the education of the pitcher right now, you and I were chatting before the show and this is our baseball global pandemic, the chasing of velocity and the improper use of weights and, and whatnot are causing all sorts of injury, taking down our very best, uh, Otani being one, close to $1 billion being paid by owners on injured players this year. I think 40% plus is pitchers. Um, the salary, so close to 50% is pitchers uh, with that. So uh, we've been banging the drum on this forever. What, what's your, I know you and I, you, if you follow that, what's it spot track? Um, the web, the website that kind of yeah. Up uh, try. Yeah. Right off the top of my head. It is, uh, well, it, yeah, it's spot track.com and it's the major league baseball 2023 injured list tracker. So it's so, there. No, you know, when we talked about it earlier this week, it was 1200 players, who are on the 40-man rosters have missed eighteen over 18,000 days on the DL and at a cost of over $384 million. So, and then, and, you know, and then we were talking about that doesn't even include, Dave, your minor leaguers uh, because this is just your 40-man roster in the majors. And when you look at someone like Otani, he's fallen prey to the – the, the two injuries that are the scourge of baseball players, the oblique 
and the Tommy John uh, and the torn UCL, L- yeah, yeah. which is going to give him time, have to have him have a second Tommy John surgery. So you have to look at what's going on and there's got to be a change, but who's going to make this change? When are we going to see a change being made? When these players are getting to the major leagues, most of them are already at the point where they're not going to be fixed because the damage has been done all through youth and high school and college baseball. So there's got to be a change at the top anyway, because you have to kind of figure out what it is that's causing this. I have a very good idea. Most people who are thinking and looking about what's going on in baseball should have a very good idea if they're willing to to look beyond the last 10 years as, as being the pinnacle of our knowledge. We're, we're, I think our, We'll do that for our audience, sure, sure. Because I like I see I they Dominguez here. You got the kid, the Martian. We've been waiting on him to come up with the Yanks. Phenomenal talent, d- delivered in every sense of the word. He's a center fielder. He's got a UCL. He, he's out for nine months now because of that. It's a hinge. It's at the hinge joint, right, right around the elbow area. Yeah. Um, so what, is it, it now? It's it's pointing. Indications are pointing to it's not just the repetitive the nature the repetitive nature of the pitching motion it's we're making not we again players are being made fragile by the by the training system that give me give me another answer let's have the people who are in charge of maintaining the status quo give us an answer uh, we we shouldn't as as sitting here on our side of the table where we're disagreeing with everything that's being done and how these players are being handled and at every turn we're getting more information and more illustrations and examples of a problem and yet there's never any kind of explanation from the people that are in charge of these players and their development how, how is that possible we we have every we have representation from every major league club that listens to the the programming here. We also have nine hundred colleges that subscribe uh, to the network. Right now, I'm putting an ask out there to to someone in that network to reach out privately if need be. But we'd love to get some answers on this and solve the problem. We're not looking to indict anybody, but when we say almost a billion dollars have been paid to injured players this season in Major League Baseball alone. I don't care what walk of life you come from. That's an awful lot of money to be paying people not to work. And uh, if the system itself is creating that problem, what would be the benefits of not fixing the problem? That's the question I think got to be asked. What what what's the benefits of not fixing the problem? Is it insurance money? Is it um, arbitration? Keeping these guys on the shelf lowers their value. They don't have to pay as much, so the billion is not a big deal. To, I mean, to me, it would be. I'd have a hard time paying a dollar without questioning it. Do teams have that little concern for their prime asset that it's just, ah, well, he's hurt for a year. We have other guys. They'll take his place. Is that that the attitude? I can't imagine in any other endeavor treating your high – never mind your any asset, but certainly your high-level asset with that kind of disdain. And to me, that's what it is. It's it's, you have have the pinnacle of – what baseball could be in Otani. And we've talked about this. We have more athletic people probably than 
we've seen playing baseball, and yet they're breaking down and they're becoming more one-dimensional in their abilities. We talked about that. We have to legislate against the shift because these players can't figure out how to hit against it. That's To me, that's probably one of the more ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. But yet here we are, and you're continually – Let's see. Let's use the term making excuses for these players, and and in some cases making excuse excuses for the system that's creating these one dimensional fragile players. What Dave? What's the worst thing that could happen if a system decided we're getting rid of the weight room, and if guys want to do that on their own, that's going to be on them. But there will be some accountability for not doing that and you have to be held accountable because we're at the point now it would be like what they do for people who are on who have all kinds of problems with their digestive system and allergies with food you have to eliminate pretty much everything and slowly add things back well i think we're at that point with these training programs all the old school nonsense with periodization and progressive overload and all that nonsense has to be thrown out and you have to come back in and Whatever strategies you're using, they have to earn their way back in. And the starting point for me would be let's go, let's do what, what teams did back in the old days where spring training was actually used to get yourself in shape for the season. It wasn't after two weeks off in the regular season or two weeks off after the regular season, you go to a, a, a training facility and work hard until you have to go back to training camp the next year and then you're already banged up and you're not recovered, that's not a way to be. That concept of always being at that level doesn't work when you're a high-level athlete. You cannot continue that. So in, in a nutshell, what I, what I would propose is you go back to, 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 to the old days and you're getting rid of the weight room. That would be, I don't care what else you do, get rid of the weight room. I think you make a great point too with these these players have become one dimensional specializations another word we use for it and I mean study history specialization leads to extinction and it's funny that we we didn't mean to draw that thread between what's going on with the uh the medical community that we mentioned in the first segment but the now with the baseball community it, it's the 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 ball players becoming extinct uh for the most part spring training you know, that's, you talk about taking away the weight room. I bet you people who even follow us and support us right away, they're taken back. Like how would, how would we survive? But baseball, you get stronger in baseball. Again, I'm not saying weights don't help you get stronger, but you get stronger in baseball by performing baseball functions. You become a stronger hitter by feeling the resistance of the bat to ball and performing the hitting function. That's how you develop abs. That's how you develop, you know, your strong uh, core. That's how you develop stronger forearms. Uh, it's, you know, how do you develop a stronger throwing arm? Throw properly. That's it. So, Dave, it goes back to the discussion we had, and I hope you had a chance to read that David Epstein transcript of his interview, where very little of the difference in Usain Bolt and Jesse Owens is attributable to training. Yeah. It's mostly equipment, track surface, and the ability to, to, to time electronically to the whatever we're at, thousandth of a second. When you do a analysis of how fast they're actually moving and take out for, I guess that was what could be called confounding factors, there's a, a, a 
blink of an eye between the t- difference between the two of them. So I was taken back when you told me that. I, in fact, I had you repeat it to me because I was even in shock of that. And um, we tend to fall pretty closely in terms of our our belief systems. But that was that was almost too deep for me to grab onto. So I was amazed by that. Yeah, I I, I appreciated the transcripts and I, I read it multiple times because I just. I'm amazed yeah, it's, by- it's like, wow, when you see that and then you look at you go on Instagram, social media, and you follow some of these accounts uh, that are alleged to be expert in the field and you get this complex, you get this complex diagram. And uh, I'm not going to name the, the account, but there's this post that a, a so-called expert put up and it's about in-season demands outstripping off-season preparation. So basically, this person is saying the training that these athletes are getting isn't enough, which is absolutely Looney Tune bonkers. And they put up these posts, uh, I'm sorry, these these uh, graphs and these charts. And I'll tell you what, Dave, there is not one shred of evidence to back up any of this stuff. There's not one shred of true evidence that will tell you a guy who, and we're talking about Major League Baseball players, so I'm going to say a guy, a guy who is better in the weight room is going to be in any appreciably in any appreciable way better on the baseball field. There's zero. There's nothing that's going to tell you. Nowhere is it going to tell you that the Mr. Power Hitter who could squat and deadlift and bench press more is going to be better than the guy who does not do that. Nowhere in any of the literature is there going to be that correlation. Where are the, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to, this is not meant to be religious for it, but where are the heretics? Where are the question askers? Where are the people that are that are going to hold um, MLB's feet to the fire? I, I don't know. I mean, these players have agents. They have, everybody's got a personal coach, but I guess everybody's got their hand dipped in their pocket and probably making money. Sure. The, uh, the big agents have training facilities. I, I, I think what it would take is, uh, Maybe it's one guy who decides he's going to buck the system and, and do things differently and not engage in that the nonsense in the weight room and could go and verbalize that. I think I wrote that article that we discussed about people who built the built the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, that's a bridge that was built over 150 years ago, and it's going to last another 150 years and go from basically uh, – Infant, the infancy of the automobile to now having subway trains, above ground trains, pedestrians and cars on it nonstop, and it still holds up. We don't need to really guess at what if this is going to be better because look at all the great players of yesteryear that didn't lift weights and they were obviously better than what we have today. And and for every Bonds and Ripken and Pete Rose. Those guys are few and far between, and now that we're in this new generation of player, they've all had surgeries and injuries. Bryce Harper, all these guys have missed significant periods of time due to injury, and it's all. I defy anyone to try to tell us it's not due to their how they're working out and training and lifting. Are there, are there any modern 
and we can go beyond baseball if we need to, but we'll stick with baseball to start. Are there any modern players that you look at, you see, and say, he's not a product of this crazy overtraining style? Well, I think any of the, you know, we've kind of made fun of guys who look like they enjoy the post-game buffet too much. I think for as bad of as, for as bad of an example of that, that that is, you've got guys that don't look, great that can still play the game pretty well. I, I don't know how that speaks to their resiliency. Uh, it's certainly not helping. The weight room is certainly not helping resiliency, if, if nothing else. If, if It's making them, again, more susceptible to injury. The diet and general exercise and health angle, you can't tell me if you took a player who is clearly overweight and still able to play in the major leagues – the type of guy who maybe has a tough time legging it out to second base on what should be a routine double, I have a hard time believing that if you couldn't get that guy under control, he wouldn't be a better player and a better hitter. Yeah. It, what's what's interesting is the things that kept these older players in shape was actual manual labor that they did in the off seasons where they were taking time away from baseball because they had to. They weren't making the money guys are making now. And – uh we pay money now to replicate that stuff in a facility. Well, you can't. You're not trying to replicate. I always say we're trying to, and uh, we're trying to develop, maintain qualities that will allow an athlete to excel in their sport. So you're not all of these posts you have. I think I sent you guys someone kids sitting on a stool with some equipment and then getting up off the stool and doing this aggressive, rapid rotation with a big, long stride, to me, even if you make the case that the speed is similar to what you do in a game, the fact that you're starting from a seated position and not swinging a bat at all and that there is a resemblance to to the action of swinging a bat actually makes it worse because... When you're talking about something that is as fine-tuned as a baseball swing, just like a golf swing, that I'm just taking a guess of a couple of percentage points different from the actual activity that you're training is enough to screw you up. And by screw you up, I can mean both technique and physically you could get hurt. And the big thing is you would see the weight stack where guys do the rotation and girls, they have that fixed hole and it's attached to the weight stack and they're slowly rotating replicating either a lacrosse swing or a baseball bat swing that is actually similar but has nothing to do with the actual action of swinging a bat those are the things that are more dangerous where you're trying to get close to replicating the action in the gym the closest what the best the best Replication is, and I've, I've quoted this guy before, there's a guy, uh, Professor Bondarchuk, who was a Russian uh, scientist and track coach who uh, discovered that the best correlation between performance and training was the athlete who could throw, he was a thrower's coach, who could throw the shot or discus that was slightly heavier or slightly lighter than the competition one, who could throw that one the furthest, through the regular competition 
shot or discus the furthest. I would say the same thing holds true in baseball. If you're going to try to improve your swing, and obviously your other physical attributes have been developed properly in a good, holistic, all-around training program that didn't include lifting weights in a very um, narrow spectrum, that your best bet is having and this is where research needs to be done, where you find the bat that uh, – I'm just – the first name that comes to my mind, Pete Alonzo, as a Met fan. T- Pete Alonzo, what bat does he what, – what, uh, what, what is the weight and dimension of his bat? And then you're going to come up with the bat, a couple of bats a little heavier, a couple of bats a little lighter, have him do batting practice with that, not uh, a simulation of a swing, but you have to be able to hit the ball. And from that, you're going to start to get data – that's going to actually give you a better chance of coming up with a better way to hit the baseball and ha- and, and improve your swing and stay healthy. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I, now 90, 1991 and 1995, um, I did, I was doing that as a college player and I carried it into a pro player for the next three seasons where I would use my bat, you know, as a college player, it was a 33 inch, 30 ounce graphite. So I would use a 32 inch, uh, 29 ounce and then 34 inch, 31 ounce. And then did the same with my wood bat because you wood bats, you can get the same model, just an inch longer and inch shorter. And it, it, it varies with the ounce based on the inch. And I didn't have any scientific data, but I just felt better to the ball uh, when I was doing that. And it was, I mean, I think they called it overload, underload. And I was doing that on my own. And then when I was a college coach, I employed that with my hitters, but I, I didn't force it. I said, here's something that I did. It helped me out. And, uh, a lot of guys went with it and I don't, you know, whether it was scientific or mental or a little bit of both. Um, we had, we had, I mean, I had a pretty good hitting career, but these, these guys uh, did, did very well using it um, and employing that. So I'll concur. I mean, it's, it's 20, 20 plus years removed from that, but uh, yeah, I think that those, those uh, basic scientific principles uh, are useful nowadays. Cause we have, we have overcomplicated it. It's the, the, the baseball's hard. Preparing for baseball is hard, but it doesn't have to be overcomplicated like they make it. No, every everybody is in business to be a complexifier because there's money to be made in it. And you said to me, who, where are the outliers? Who are the, the rebels, so to speak? The problem is you get so shouted down in, in most forums by those who are ignorant and are defenders of the status quo that it's... It's very difficult unless someone, again, is willing to take a chance and say, hey, we have to change things. And we're not going to go with the same guy that's been in charge of a team and that has had more injuries than they've ever had before or haven't changed the injury culture one bit and is going to continue to do the same kind of training and is going to be focused on minutia of a, a small muscle group in the rib cage or by your lats as what is the actual problem. That's that's not the problem. The problem is the grand whole overall design of these systems, and it's a failure. And even, I've said this before, even the people in the field who are doing good work and really want to fix things are taking their good work and plugging it into a system that's broken, so you're doomed to failure. I've used the example of, of a recipe where you have 10 quality ingredients and then you have two ingredients that poison the pot, so to speak. And 
that's what we have here. You could have the greatest five exercises in the world in your program. But if you have another five that are crappy and another five that are flat out detrimental in a system that is also incorrect as far as rest and recovery, then it doesn't matter how great those five exercises are. You know, if if I had my plan, which I have, and it was applied improperly, it's not going to work because it's the application of it that's just as important as the elements that make that program up. Uh, another thing we see on social media is the are these trainers who have these great drills that could be great drills, but when you watch the athletes performing them, all the elements of the drill that are supposed to be enhanced by doing the drill are not being coached and they're they're done improperly. So you can have the greatest drill in the world, but if your foot strike is wrong, if your shoulder, if your control of your stride from your shoulders is not there. If you're off balance and if you're never extended at the ankle, knee, and hip, it doesn't matter how good the drill is. Yeah, and- there's no magic. I, I get asked that all the time, with whether it's less with the uh, the workout stuff. But I always say I'm a terrible drill coach. I'm not here to entertain people. I'm, I'm I, I like to teach skills, and there's no magic drill out there that that does anything for anybody. It's the as you said, the application of it the teacher reinforcing, but all I hear on YouTube is, yeah, good, right, good, good, yeah, right, good. Yeah. Here's, the, here's the best drill. It's elite. It's an, a, a drill for elite athletes. Well, I got news for you. Elite athletes, even if they get to that level, they don't stay elite if they're landing flat-footed with no extension at the ankle, knee, and hip, which you see in most of these jumping and bounding and sprinting drills. So – so there, that's where we are. And, and it's it's disheartening because there's no indication that it's going to get any better. Yeah. So, you know, you, you're familiar with my my children. I talk about them to you off the air, but we, we utilize them on the air sometimes. So Tanner's grown up in a generation. He has an opportunity. He's done really well in baseball. Uh, it, it, it appears as though he has an opportunity to take the next steps in it. What that is, who knows? But yeah. um, he's inundated with things on the internet. He's inundated with voices outside of myself. What would be a couple of things you would say to him? Because he, he's your audience. You've got a lot of young kids out there listening. How would you educate them or advise them and or their parents to approach this wave of training that is uh, obviously injuring people? Um, how, how would you arm them to be prepared to say, no, not me? Well, anything that overtly or right off the bat is putting weights in a kid's hand is immediately off. You can find someone new. There's, again, there's posts on Instagram. I cannot believe the stuff I see. Where an eight-year-old doing heavy squats or heavy other lifts are being glorified. And if anyone dares point out that uh, there are many ways young athletes can learn to handle weights, that's not one of them. You get shouted down. So again, that's a great example. When you go into a situation where they're doing training for your kid, unless they've done some kind of real qualitative and quantitative movement analysis, that could be as simple as what's their ankle range of motion? What's their shoulder range of motion? What's their cervical? How how do they move their head left to right, up, down, side to side? And there's some very accessible, and by accessible, I mean to professionals, systems out there that if you know what you're doing, which you should be knowing what you're doing if you're getting into this, 
that you can evaluate an athlete in a short period of time and immediately have five action items that your kid's going to work on, that that kid is going to work on before you even consider about what your performance training is going to be like. There's, there's, there's some sports, obviously, that are different. But if you look at those sports, sports like gymnastics uh, and sports like figure skating were very early on, not just relatively, but flat-out eight-year-old, nine-year-olds are already in the national, international pipeline. Those sports don't do a lot of off-ice, off-floor work uh, because they spend so much time on the ice that they don't have time for that other stuff. And they recognize that if my skater is going to do a triple axel and need to master the set of complex skills that encompass that, I don't need them in the weight room squatting. Same thing with the gymnasts, the most athletic people in the world. They're not wasting time in the weight room. When have you ever seen a program for a gymnast, a high-level gymnast, that has them in the weight room? You don't. So that's where you're you're at. That's where your mind should be at. A, a kid, a young kid's program, and by young kid, I'm talking about even up into freshman year. I have some freshmen that are babies physically, and the last thing in the world they should have is a weight put in their hand or on their back. We're doing intensive movement work. Now, the workouts are hard. It's taxing but they're not ready to hold weights yet. So those are the things that as a, as a parent, you should look at what's your program is your program getting them in the weight room, or do you have a movement analysis system and evaluation system that you know what my kids weak points are and what we need to work on and where that could translate into a problem with technique or um, the ability to avoid, you know, to minimize how an injury. I, I couldn't agree more. And then on the mental side, I, I harp on this because we do this with homeschool. And anytime I see teaching methods out there with coaching or otherwise, until you understand the socialization and learning strategies of a kid, it's really hard to tap into, unless you're just handling the generic, tap into how to maximize that kid's intellect and, and creativity and genius. And there's too much cookie cutter stuff out there with that. So I, uh, I, I appreciate that advice. Cause you know, even though I'm entrenched in this stuff, like you are, when I step away, I'm still a dad and I've got to educate him on how to handle himself. So we try to make him dummy proof and this podcast helps out a ton for him. So we appreciate you in that regard. So how do you want to leave the audience today? Well, I, I'll, I want to leave you with that. And I want to have people think that the habits and, and techniques and, and tendencies, these young kids pick up on are very difficult to overcome, especially when you consider the volume of work they do at a young age that in, in a period of a year or so, you could really have kids fall into very bad habits and movement patterns that are going to be very hard to undo. So really be uh, in, in tune with that. If you go into a place, you, you should know, want to know what's your system of evaluation to be able to come up with the program that's going to address the needs of my kid or kids? That's a good question for them to ask. So the system evaluation you have to address the specific needs of my kids. I'm writing that down. Program. Like the, 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 there should be, a, there, there's a spectrum of things you pick from, but I don't, I'm not cookie cuttering, cookie cuttering a program based on, because the, the kid's 12 or 14, you know, the difference between a mature 12 year old and an immature 12 year old is like a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old in some cases. So there's a lot of things that go into that. On both kids, you can have that that overly mature 12-year-old boy 
that still has and actually could have more problems because of developmentally how the body moves that you need to be aware of. A lot of people make the mistake. They see that 12-year-old that's mature looking and they throw stuff at them that they're not ready to handle. And while they could fake their way through it, from a developmental standpoint, it's hurting them. So that's no, a good good wrap up for our audience today. We gave them a, gave them a lot today on episode 293 here, The Hot Corner. Um, for our audience, 50,000 plus, got us on iHeart. We appreciate you. Give Sal five stars today on The Hot Corner. Write him some great comments for us uh, to the 74 countries supporting us. Continue to support. Let me know if there's more countries out there that we can tap into. And uh, Sal, thanks so much for a great show today. Good luck on your broadcast tonight and have a great weekend. Thanks, Dave. You too. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. Hot Corner with Coach Sal, 293 on the network here. Have a great weekend, audience.